Hey, everybody, and welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. We have a fun conversation for you coming up with John Fuelsang. But first, thanks for tuning in. We appreciate you listening, and we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media, and we'll read some feedback next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe, and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. All right, it's time for John Fuglesang. He is a Drama League-nominated actor, comedian, broadcaster, and podcaster who hosts the acclaimed Tell Me Everything series on Sirius XM Progress. He's been a regular on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, and he hosted Viewpoint on Current TV. He also helped launch the syndicated pop culture comedy series Page Six TV to record ratings in syndication. And he sold out theaters across the country with Stephanie Miller, Hal Sparks, and Aisha Tyler on the Sexy Liberal Comedy Tour. Their album, Volume 1, became the first political album to ever hit number one on the Amazon, iTunes, and Billboard comedy charts. He co-hosted America's Funniest Home Videos for two seasons, and his acting credits include CSI, Becker, Coyote Ugly, The Girl on the Train, Somewhere in the City, The Whole Truth, Maggie Black, and the award-winning Coexist Comedy Tour. John, welcome into the back room. Thank you so much, Andy. I'm really honored to be here. So what, the first thing I want to just start off with is that for a short amount of time back in the 90s, I dabbled in stand-up comedy. I went all over the city and did shows, and it was a lot of fun. And I used to do the Duplex Stars of Tomorrow contest. This was like Friday nights. I think it started probably around a midnight or something crazy like that. So one week I'm doing it, and uh, I, I, I killed. I just absolutely killed and I was like, this is it. I'm winning this sucker tonight. And then this guy comes on after me, and he actually killed. He really killed. And he won. I came in second place. He won. And that guy was you. Oh, Lord. That was, that, that's, that's before the late 90s, my friend. That, that was, was a while ago. That was like 93, because that's when I started doing it, and I started out the duplex. And then right after that, I think, you kind of blew up on VH1, and like I was like, John Fugles, I know that guy. That fucker killed my comedy career. Oh no! no. Well, <laughs> so I, I, I blame I, it all on you. It, after that I, I, night, it was it was all downhill for me, uphill for you. But no, it was a lot of fun doing those shows. And when I saw that you had bec- become, you know, successful at it, I was really happy for you. Well, uh, thank you. I can say it was a, uphill was the right word. Uh, you know. Um, but yeah, my first, that was my first broadcast job at VH1. They, they hired me to like be the comedian, uh, to, to make fun of music videos. And I, I wound up becoming their de facto classic rock guy. So, um, they didn't let me be funny much. It was a lot of me just being a very bland prompter monkey, (laughs) but it did wind up, uh, being sort of like a broadcasting grad school for me. And, uh, and I, I learned a lot from it, but it was, it was very frustrating. I went in there wanting to make fun of, of rubbish and I wound up pushing rubbish uh, and selling it and being, in, in so many cases, the the, the well-scrubbed, uh, clean-cut, bland, white face <laughs> of rubbish. And I, I literally found myself forced to introduce music videos by the same artists I had mocked to get the job in the first place. And and can you name one or two of those artists? Uh, uh, Michael, I mean, I got the job, I think, because I was doing a bit about Michael Bolton. Uh, I This is back during a dark time, young people when uh, VH1 had to play a Michael Bolton video at least three times every half hour in rotation. And I, I was just, I, I, it made me so disgusted. I hated this guy. And I just took the the, the, uh, the video for a song called Missing You Now that featured a young Terry Hatcher. 
and uh, and I just broke it down and discussed the use of allegory and Kenny G as a Christ figure and just ripped it to shreds. <laughs> and they offered me a job saying, hey, we're relaunching our channel, man. We're making it hipper. Come over. And and I said, oh, great. Sure. If you like my savage wit, great. <laughs> and, you know, a year later, I'm there like, if I want to pay the rent, I've got to introduce this Michael Bolton video with a straight face. And I just thought, oh, I, I, I'm experiencing whoredom for the first time. So I, I learned a lot. But uh but it was it was it was uh, often quite frustrating. I learned a lot about how how TV works. And what do you show. think? It's an odd decision to bring someone like you in and then completely not let you do what it is they wanted to bring you in for the reason why they left you. That's TV hosting. That's TV hosting one hundred and one. Mm. That's the first thing I learned is whatever you do that makes you unique to get the job, they'll want to scrub away once you have the job. And I I can't even tell you how many times this has happened. I mean. America's Funniest Home Videos. I wound up doing that show. And I just went out there and they, they you know, they asked me to audition for it. And I'm like, I, I don't have time. They said, well, she's going to stay late before she catches her flight back to L.A. to audition you. I went in and I'm, I just made fun of it. And they flew me out to L.A. For, this, for the network test. And I just made fun of it. And then they hired me. And right away, you know, they want you to be a certain kind of prompter monkey. Mm -hmm. um, they, you know, and, and I just used to feel like a weatherman in Omaha. It made me really, really... Uh, neurotic um that like you know yeah i'm a bland white guy but can i get any tv job where i where i'm not talking like this <laughs> so it was very frustrating but it was very good in a way because it taught me at a very young age the kind of work that i didn't want to do and um and and that was uh very valuable i learned in my 20s that my definition of success was very different than the agents who <laughs> were sending me out these these gigs well, it's interesting what you're saying about TV hosting because it's oh, it's like when like Chris Rock would host the the Oscars and then they would criticize him for being edgy. It's like you yeah. hired Chris Rock. What did you expect, right? Like, yeah, just... everyone's afraid. Yeah, they want edgy, but not in your face. They want a political without taking sides and a New York flavor without being too urban. You know, it's always no one knows what they want, and that's why you have to just work hard at being yourself. And it, not try to be a first-rate version of something else, but a, a first-rate version of you and whatever that means. So a lot of it really is finding you mm. in this process and finding what's sincere. And, you know, I knew a lot of guys who just were really good at that, who just wanted to come out and talk like this and wear a suit and be a mannequin and get paid well for it. And and uh, that's great. Um, but it made me crazy mm. to, to, you know, turn on the radio and hear people making fun of your TV show and, and you agree with it. So, you know, it was a great lesson for me at a young age that um, what impresses a lot of other people might not still be what you're supposed to do. So I've always been very grateful for that kind of work. It, it made me a better broadcaster, um, but uh, it also taught me that uh, my heart was not going to... I'm too much of a snob, Andy. That's my short answer. I was too much of a snob. <laughs> a, a, a bland white snob. That's uh, <laughs> That's in high demand today. Well... Yeah, fortunately, America manufactures a lot of those. Yeah. So speaking of Michael Bolton, you, you know, we can all look at our, <laughs> we can, how's that for a segue? We can all look at our lives and like there's moments we're not proud of, right? So I, I don't know exactly what song it was, but there was a song that he came out. Maybe it was When a Man Loves a Woman. I don't know what it was, but I was like, hey, this, this guy's not bad. And I went into Tower and I was like, I'm going to buy not one, not two, but three Michael Bolton albums. It's a really low point in my life. I can't explain it, 
But now's where I got to say, you know, Michael Bolton, he's lived long enough to get in on the joke. He's been really masterful at mocking his own image. Um, and he he co-wrote a song with Bob Dylan. So Michael Bolton wins too. It, it just went crazy. There was just something about him that made me go out and buy three albums, which I never listened to, by the way. Like, I think the cellophane might actually still be on two of them. VH1 pushing him relentlessly on you that, yeah. that made you do what it was. Yeah. So yeah. what is your background? Where did you grow up? And uh, your mother was a nun or an ex-nun? Is that true? Mother was, my mother was an ex-nun, yeah. She, she had to be an ex-one to have me. Um, you know, I, I had a, a kind of a strange childhood. Um, my mother was from the South and my father was from Brooklyn. So we were raised in a bilingual household. Uh, mom called us y'all, dad called us rat bastards. <laughs> Um, but my mother, uh, when she finished high school, went directly into the convent and the convent, uh, she made her vows and became sister Damien. The convent put her through nursing school and then sent her, uh, briefly to Brooklyn to Holy Family Hospital. My father was a Franciscan brother. He, uh, he wore the brown robes and the rope belt and taught history to Catholic boys and walked amongst the people like the lost Jedi of Flatbush. My father uh, at a young age had tuberculosis and wound up being hospitalized and falling madly in love with this quiet southern nun uh, that took care of him that he knew he could never have and had promised his god he would never want. Uh, the convent then sent my mother to Africa for many years to work first with lepers and then a uh, hospital in the jungles of Malawi my father stayed in love and wrote her uh, many, many love letters. Well, not love letters. He he couldn't ever say it. So he wrote her letters about the news, about what was going on back in the States with Vietnam and civil rights, um, LBJ. That's, that's hot. Oh, well, you know, I mean, the Mother Superior would open them and read them to the convent. My mother was the last one to get her mail. Uh, but it, it was like the newspaper for the her village because they had no videos or, or papers. Eventually, they transfer my mother back to America. My father borrowed a car, drove down south, uh, told her he was in love with her. And she threw him out of the hospital saying, you have no right to say this to me. Look how I'm dressed. But he he kept at her. And eventually she went back to Africa and then decided to come back. And they got married and tried to raise us uh, to be progressive, free thinking Catholics. And that's why I'm a comedian, Andy, because I can never <laughs> afford the therapy I actually so deeply require. So uh, I grew up out in the the Isle of Long in the in the heart of the Buttafuoco Belt, and um, <laughs> and and uh, yeah, then uh, moved into the city and began doing stand up after you know doing a lot of acting and stuff like that. So, uh, but but I, I in in stand up, I, I kept getting asked to like Bill Maher would have me on a lot to debate Jerry Falwell at a very young age or David Duke, and my mother finally gave me permission. She, she never let us talk about her background. We weren't allowed to tell our friends why our parents were so much older than everybody else's parents. They had been in the clergy for 16 years. Um, after I debated Jerry Falwell one day on Bill Maher, my mom gave me permission to start talking about where I came from. And once I did that, it really opened up a, a, a great creative wellspring. And and um, and a lot of people responded to it. And I've, I've sort of developed this uh, obnoxious habit my agents don't like of um, using the Bible uh, in, in comedy to make fun of what we're now calling Christian nationalists or fundamentalists or, you know, just plain old uh, racist fake Christians. And um, so I've sort of like 
you know, for a long time used the Bible to thump Bible thumpers with it. And uh, which gets me in a lot of trouble sometime, but it, it makes for some pretty interesting comedy. Well, you're very active on Twitter and you do use religion and the Bible to counter the craziness that comes at you. I mean, there's so much we could talk about about the craziness in the world, but a lot of it is rooted in, in religion, which is just in its most simplistic form is supposed to bring people together and make them care about everybody else. And it's just the opposite of that. You're right. I mean... You know, when I was a, a little kid, my my dad pulled me out of bed late one night and, uh, and and brought me into his room to watch the late news. My mother was working nights back then, and and I, I didn't understand it was a school night. And my dad wanted me to see Jimmy Carter signing the Camp David Peace Accord between Menachem Begin and uh, and Anwar Sadat. My dad couldn't believe that an American president had brought peace between Egypt and Israel. And he wanted his son there to witness a Christian, a Muslim, and a Jew embracing in mm. peace and fellowship. And my dad, uh, to him, that was everything that Christianity and the Bible could and should be. Uh, so that was my model of, of Christianity growing up. I was around a lot of nuns and ex-clergy all the time. My mother was a nurse at a convent for for retired nuns. And I grew up knowing nuns who like did homeless outreach with runaways, you know, and, and got their hands dirty, uh, with the least of us. So I grow up in this Jerry Falwell, America, this Pat Robertson, America, where criminalizing abortion, which the Bible never mentions winds up becoming synonymous with Christianity. And I grew up in a world where I, I would know cool people of faith. And my cousins were married to Jewish people and Muslims who were cool. And then I turn on the news and all you would get would be atheists or imbeciles. You would get non-believers or fake Christians screaming at women outside clinics. And and it was always very confusing to me. Like, like, what is this? I grew up with one idea of religion, but then the culture presents me this other thing. And it took me a long time to realize that that stuff is, that bullshit gets the news. That gets all the hype. There's millions of moderate and liberal Christians, Jews, and Muslims who get along every day right now, and they're never going to get on TV. But the villains, mm -hmm. he needs a villain that's ratings crack, and that's why the Jerry Falwells and the Pat Robertsons get on. It's not because journalists endorse their views. It's because we're in a ratings-driven culture, and villains drive numbers. So these frauds, these flock-fleecing Pharisees will get on TV and push this gospel of cruelty. And we grow up thinking, oh, that's that's Christianity. And to me, that was rubbish. You know, the, you, the only commandment, as you said, in the whole Bible about immigration is welcome the stranger. I didn't write it, but I grew up feeling this disconnect. And it's why you don't even, you don't need to believe in the Bible to use it against these fundamentalists. You don't need to believe the Bible is literal fact to use it against them either. I say this all the time. Some of the best Christians I know are atheists, and some of the most godless heathens I know are believers who can't stop bragging about their piety. So, you know, Jesus, this character in the book, always stands for the marginalized. Whoever's being crapped on by society, whoever's got it lowest, the lepers, the prostitutes, the, the poorest of the poor, the tax collectors, uh, you know, whoever this, the despised foreign minorities like the Samaritans, e even the Roman centurion. Um, you know, who's occupying the land, whoever is being hated, that's who Jesus stands up for. And that was the model I grew up with. We now live in an America where right-wing Christianity, I mean, passes for regular Christianity, and that's the gospel of crapping on the marginalized. Whoever's lowest is who you should abuse. 
the Christian refugees at our southern border that we call illegals. I mean, the, the, the trans children who want to use a bathroom they feel comfortable in, trans soldiers willing to risk their lives for a society that hates them and scapegoats them. I mean, Donald Trump ran for president promising to bring back torture and turn away war refugees. And he got the evangelical vote. So for me, it's all about the separation of church and hate. Yeah. And and I think, you know, if you look at the Bible and want to see bigotry and exclusion and meanness and shittiness to women and gay people, you'll see it. But if you want to see love and justice and uplifting the least of these, you'll you'll see that too. It, it really is a mirror for what kind of person you are, I've come to believe. Yeah. Well, there's this scene in Annie Hall when he's online at the movie theater and the douche behind him is ranting about Marshall McLuhan. And he's just like, he, he can't, like, it's just, oh my God. And like, and then he just says, well, I happen to have Marshall McLuhan here. And Marshall McLuhan says, sir, you know nothing of my work. And it's like that. If like, if we could pull Jesus into the room, Jesus would look at these people and go, you know nothing of my work. Nothing. Yeah. And that's why I get in a lot of trouble. But to me, it's just like, you know, and I'm writing a book about this right now. And I, I cover this a lot on SiriusXM, but I mean we have this book where uh, this character of Jesus, whether he's real or not, myth or divine son of God or just groovy activist or the original innocent brown-skinned man executed by the state. But um, I can't prove the magic tricks. You know, I love all the great Jew magicians, Houdini, what have you. Uh, we have the teachings this guy lays down. And so for me, like what makes me crazy, Andy, is this this character in the book uh, this peaceful, radical, nonviolent revolutionary who hangs around with lepers and hookers and crooks, who never speaks English, is not an American citizen, is anti-wealth, uh, anti-death penalty, anti-public prayer. Matthew 6, 5, he says, don't trust people who pray in public to be seen, but never once anti-gay, never once mentions abortion, never once technically condemns premarital sex never calls poor people lazy, never says torture is okay sometimes, never fights for tax cuts for the wealthiest Nazarenes, never <laughs> asks a leper for a copay, and is a long-haired, brown-skinned, that's in Revelation, brown-skinned, homeless, community organizing, unarmed, anti-slut-shaming, Palestinian, liberal Jew. That, that's if you believe what's actually in the Bible. So as long as these folks these right-wing Christians are going to pollute our politics and distort their version of the Bible, I'm going to point out that you don't need to believe in any of it to use it against them mm -hmm. and say, show me, Mike Pence, where in your holy book does Jesus drive the gay wedding cakes out of the temple? You want to say religious freedom means you get to discriminate against taxpaying LGBT citizens? Show me where the Jesus, the Christ, whose your religion is named after, where does he give you license to do that? Because uh, to me, it's like uh, I'm tired of waiting for politicians to start using the Bible to push back on these fake Bible thumpers. Their 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 religion is putting women in jail for something Jesus never mentions, and pretending they're better than you. Yeah, well, I mean, you're you're talking to a guy who who like when the the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on my door, I'm like, guys, I believe that organized religion is the root of all evil. So you you might want to go next door. Um, God bless you. you know, when, I, when when the uh, Mormons would knock on my door when I lived in L.A., I'd invite them in and talk about what was in the Bible, and uh, they wouldn't come back. So you have, you have way more patience than I. I, I well, because I don't think it's organized religion. I, I think it's the fundamentalists. There, there's millions of groovy Christians and Muslims and Jews that aren't bothering anybody mm -hmm. and are just getting being nice people right now. I've really I've known too many 
kind and empathetic people in all different religions. I'm not against faith. I'm not against the Bible. Right. I'm not against, but it's the fundamentalist, Sandy, of every, the extreme right wing of every religion is exactly the same. It's like all one yeah. conservative Christian, Muslim, Jew. If you're on the far right, you think women are second-class citizens. You think gay is evil. You think sex is icky unless it's for procreation. You think violence is okay if my side does it. And other religions are allowed to exist, but they're all inferior. The more to the right your religion is, doesn't matter which faith, the more you believe those things. Right. And that's what I'm about marginalizing. And you don't have to believe any of it to call these people out. Yeah. And to clarify my position, it's not the people that you're talking about. It's it's the leadership, those who have that's used it, yeah. abused it, exploited it uh, for truly nefarious and often evil, violent purposes. I agree. Um, I agree. So Luke jump- Skywalker says, as Luke Skywalker says, the Jedi don't own the force. They do not. And religion doesn't own God or faith or belief or whatever your relationship is with the great mystery. Mm-hmm. So who were your comedy influences growing up? George Carlin changed my life. You mm-hmm. know, the first time I saw George, the first time I saw George Carlin changed my life. And uh and I I decided I wanted to be a comedian after. I'd seen him on TV a million times, but the first time I saw him live, it was after the first Gulf War, and and war was really popular, 93%. Of Americans were just crazy about sending troops to fight to restore the dictator of Kuwait. Uh, it was dirty. We, Whitney Houston lip synced the national anthem and made it a single, and it was just a creepy time of nationalism and feeling good about slaughter and and uh, I, and I felt really alone, you know. Uh, um, and and I went and saw Carlin on the Jammin' in New York tour, which is his best album in my opinion. That's where he opens the whole thing with just this extended rant against this incredibly popular Persian Gulf War, that was the album where he said he stopped being a comic and became an essayist. And it was the first time a comedian ever made me feel less alone in the world. So uh, George Carlin, and then, you know, I mean, uh, Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy, Robin Williams, all the big ones, Bill Hicks, you know, uh, and and I'm I'm constantly inspired by by new comedians and anybody who finds ways to um, use humor to convey truth. Mm -hmm. You got the George Carlin hair, I got to say. 70s oh, yeah? hair. The George Carlin 70s hair. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's growing in. Yeah. And then the George Carlin 70s coke habit. Uh, I'm working on that. <laughs> uh, yeah, that you might want to think about. Reconsider that one. Um, not, not, a, not a fan. And so political comedy. You're obviously a very political guy. Is it hard to get on TV these days when you're political as a comic? Always. Always. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can get on CNN on a panel. You can go on cable news and right. wear a suit. But to do stand-up, you, I mean, you all can watch this yourself. Uh, you you kind of have to have your own late-night talk show to do political material on a late-night talk show. The networks don't want to risk alienating anybody, and I understand that. So it's it's hard. You, The hosts can do political material, but you'll you'll once in a while you'll see a political comic on late night, but very rarely. Mm. Usually I think it's when they're doing impressions, which seems to be more generally accepted. Yeah, I think Kimmel and Colbert and Seth have all gone a long way uh, towards bringing, you know, political humor into, uh, and I think Letterman really did a lot of it as well. But, um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's tricky and I, and I get it, you know, as when Bill Maher was on five nights a week, I did that show all the time back on ABC mm-hmm. um, because, you know, there was a demand for it, but generally it's one of many reasons why it's kind of crazy to do political comedy. Yeah. You also run the alienating your audience and you know that all that sort of stuff so it i'm lucky that i've gotten to build up a following over time and i do tours where people know what they're getting when they come to see me 
um, which makes a big difference. But, you know, uh, I was just doing a show up in the Berkshires the other night and they told me they they told me, oh, go really political. This is a real Kennedy town. Go really. And there were quite a number of Donald Trump folks in the audience. And we had some fun with them, but I wound up doing a lot more physical comedy and goofy stuff uh, rather than a straight up political set. <clears throat> By the way, they meant Bobby Kennedy Jr. was what they were. That's probably it. <laughs> Why all my vaccines are awesome material that go over that one. <laughs> and um, comedy in general, it, it, we live in an age of, you know, PC and I'll just throw the word woke out there without giving my opinion of what that really means uh, other than just I don't know what that means. Caring about other people. Well, it's crazy. Yeah, that's what it used to be. Yeah. Well, it used to be a word that anti-racist used to describe being anti-racist <laughs> and now it's become a word that racists use to mock being anti-racist. Right, exactly. Every generation finds a new... When I was a kid, it was bleeding heart. <laughs> right? Bleeding heart was a smear. Right. Like You mean like Jesus? And then it was politically correct was a smear. Right. And then it was social justice warrior was a smear. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, every decade they find a new way to smear uh, not being... Humanity. A <laughs> empathy, yeah. Humanity and empathy. Just, right. You know. So is it difficult today in 2023 to be a stand-up comic when it seems so much that the Carlins, the Priors, those guys, uh, so much is off the table? No, because it's about it's about finding your audience, you know, and it's about knowing how to play to a, an even room as well. Mm -hmm. When I was very young, I, I went out and middled for a couple of years for Daryl Hammond, um, mm -hmm. who, I, who I love, and I think he's a great comic, and he's a uh, uh, just a great live stand-up. Um, I, I want him to do an autobi more autobiographical stand-up, but he he's great at what he does. And uh, this was after 9-11. And Daryl wanted me to go out there and be really political so he could come out and win them back. He wanted the reverse. George Carlin used to have Dennis Blair go out before him and just do impressions. And then the crowd would see a mainstream comic and laugh. And then George would come out and be savage and people would walk out. Daryl wanted the opposite of that. And this was right after 9-11, and I was going out doing anti-Bush material. And I had a couple of instances where I got scared for my life with some folks. And then I realized if I made fun of, you know, Democrats first, if I told some jokes about the Clintons and Al Gore first, conservative folks in the crowd would laugh, and they'd know I wasn't singling them out. And then I could make fun of Bush and Cheney all I wanted, and they'd be along for the ride. So it was actually a very good education for me. As in most things, it's about playing to the room you're in. Mm. Well, that is true. I remember I would sometimes do back-to-back -back shows one night to the, to the next, same material, and the and just the the change in the audience was astounding. Yeah. Stuff that killed on a Monday just died on Tuesday, and so it is the it is the audience. You've also done a ton of interviews, amazing, truly amazing interviews. I was astounded by the range of them, like from Mike Ditka to Rodney King to. Professor Joseph Stiglitz. Um, oh, yeah. The Old Beatles. I mean. Um, two of the Beatles. Two of the Beatles. Two of the Beatles, but in the same week in different countries. Am I, did I get that right? Different continents, continents. in the same week. Right. Yes. And I handed Ringo a glass of water once. Peace and I, love, I, I did. Peace and love. I did George in New York on a Thursday and Paul in London on a Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So who are the people that you've interviewed over the years that became favorite interviews or have surprised you that you thought was going to be different in one way or another? Because it's such a broad range. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, um, George Harrison kind of kind of changed my life because yeah. uh, I was I just started that VH1 job. I've been doing that a couple of years. 
uh, you know, and, and I didn't want to be an interviewer, but I was a big music fan and they asked me to sit down with him and, uh, we thought he was going to come in and do like a, a 10 minute soundbite, but I loved George. He was my favorite solo Beatle. Um, he had grown up Catholic and then his spirituality expanded outward. And as a young person that mm -hmm. really appealed the journey I was on. And I also just loved his solo music. Um, I, I had every B-side he ever put out. And I knew if I asked about the Beatles, he'd get bored and leave. He was coming in with Ravi Shankar. He had produced the Chance of India album. Um, and and uh, so I asked him about spirituality and God and what happens when you die and meditation. My producer's in my ear saying, no, talk about John Lennon. But I knew he'd leave. So I just talked about all this other stuff. And he really opened up and he went up sticking around for four hours. Wow. Uh, one of our crew's girlfriend came to visit. She was in a band and had her guitar on her. I put the guitar in George's hands and he played um, a four song set of four tracks he'd never played live before. He hadn't done a concert in America in over 20 years at this time. And uh, that wound up being his last public performance. VH1 didn't air any of that, mm. uh, very little of it. They put out a 22 minute special. But then a couple of years later when George was really sick you know he was diagnosed a couple months after this and i was doing the comedy festival in montreal and they asked me to come to new york and and recut it um so when he died they finally aired all the spirituality stuff that they wouldn't air the first time because mm -hmm. who cares about this but the day he dies around the clock they're airing george and this 26 year old talking about death and what happens when you die and god and the soul and um you know, I was such a bad interviewer when I met him, Andy. I was so nervous. And a couple of years later, getting to watch it again it really helped me forgive myself and realize, you know, you don't need to punish yourself for being a perfectionist. Um, I think the rawness that I was so embarrassed of was probably why he stayed for so long, because I right. wasn't a interviewer. I was just this messy kid. And I think that was probably made it less boring for him. So it was very, very healing. And, uh, and it taught me that when you're doing an interview with a big celebrity, they're so bored all the time. They've done it a million times. If you can find the area that they are passionate about that mm -hmm. no one ever talked about, it'll open up another room in their brain and something special will come out. So he he helped me uh, personally and professionally. Yeah, well, it sounds like not only did he not think it was boring, but he, he clearly found it incredibly appealing for the reasons you're I, stating. Um hope so. Rodney King. Wow, well, yeah, that was I was doing mornings on CNN uh for a while when my when my son was first born i was i would i would get up at 4 a.m and sneak out of the house while the baby was still sleeping and one day uh, i was doing solo that o'brien's morning show for a, a year and um one day rodney king was one of our guests mm -hmm. and i you know it's one thing to be interviewing him on a panel but in the commercial breaks to just hang out with him and realize you changed history and 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 his pain changed mm -hmm. history. Rodney King became very famous, but he didn't stop being a troubled man with Dean. Mm -hmm. He knew how significant his place in history was. He knew what he was going to go to his grave being famous for, and he had to carry that every day while still struggling with the things that got him in trouble in the first place. And uh, just incredible humanity. He could have become bitter. He could have become an angry guy. And instead, he just really, really focused on on love and he inspires me to this day. Yeah, well, With I mean, to say, why can't we all just get along? I mean, it's so simple and so easy, but it really is what it's about. And having it come from him at the time it came 
from him, given what had happened to him, it did have profound, lasting impact. I still think about it all the time. I think about it today when I see what's going on in the world. I, I often yeah. think about him just saying, why can't we all just fucking get along? A lot, a lot of us can. A lot of us do. You know, mm-hmm. But the whole thing is, those of us who do get along don't make the news. People what? of different races and backgrounds getting along, helping out, working together, building families together, mm-hmm. being in the same workplace or same spiritual community, that, that's great. It makes yeah. the world go round. Doesn't make the news. Right. If you're going to throw a brick at a guy's head, you'll make the news tonight. Right. And that's the news we keep getting. We can't lose sight of the fact that the majority of us, I really do believe this, the majority of us aren't dicks. Yeah. Um, people who believe things that we don't like, can you can have a lot of messed up beliefs and still not be a dick. And, and that, I think that's what all the great spiritual leaders are saying, from Jesus to Gandhi to Rodney King. Just don't be a dick. Yeah. Well, it gets back to what I was saying before about religion. It's just that the people you're talking about, we don't make the news, but we also, unfortunately, in a lot of cases, we don't make the decisions. And that's where I think that the line is, you know, is those who that's make true. the decisions and have the power and can control things going one way or another in this world often make the wrong decisions. You had an interesting film back in 2015 called Dream On, where uh, you toured the country and uh, just spoke to people about uh, dreams, the American dream, and it won Best Documentary at the New York Independent Film Festival. We'll talk about that for a couple of minutes. Well, they came to me. I was doing this show for Al Gore's Current TV, and that was wrapping up. Um, and they came to me, and uh, this Oscar-nominated director and had this great concept for a, a film. Um, it was to follow the same path Alexis de Tocqueville took in 1830 when he came over and wrote Democracy in America, which was really, you know, the book that created the concept of the American dream. De Tocqueville had grown up in this class system in Europe where the only way, if you were born poor, you stayed poor. If you were born wealthy, you stayed wealthy. And the only way you ever rose in society would be if you were born poor and joined the clergy. And then maybe you could rise up and be a bishop one day. But otherwise, there was no economic mobility. There was no ladder. De Tocqueville came to America and couldn't believe the opportunity here. He thought our culture was really fucked up and women were treated horribly and blacks and Indians were treated horribly. But he was so inspired by the fact that people could rise. And he said, no American is immune from the yearning desire to rise. And so the idea for this film in the midst of the recession was to drive around the country and uh, visit the same cities. He went to almost 200 years later and talk to people from all walks of life about the American dream, what it was, what you were taught it could be, what it still could be. We were in prisons and homeless shelters and soup kitchens, and we were in the offices of billionaire industrialists. And um, we did uh, over 100 interviews in 55 cities in 17 states. Initially, it was going to be a, a miniseries for PBS, and then they asked us to turn it into a feature. And uh, it was incredibly exhausting, but it was, you know, really a film that um, that that like I was doing this TV show and I lost my job and I went on the road because I didn't want to see anybody. My whole network was canceled. So I wound up making a movie about everybody who's losing their job. And it was a, a, a very deeply spiritual experience that made me more patriotic than ever for the people in this country, um, the people who are fighting with jobs for justice, the people who are fighting to try to create greater mobility, be it, you know, First Nations tribes. Mm-hmm. We spent a whole day at the Cherokee Reservation in North Carolina where they split all the income from the casino revenue evenly. Everyone gets a check for 11 grand a year. When a child turns 18, they get a check for $100,000 and they can buy a house. Mm-hmm. And it 
it drove down suicide. It drove down incarceration. It drove down addiction rates. It showed that those things, you know, those things don't happen uh, because poor people are bad. Those things happen because good people are poor. And so you know, it was a film that really filled me with inspiration. And then they had me do a set about it, about income inequality. And, and we filmed this whole hour long set of me talking about the issues in the film. Um, and, you know, I, I really do believe that it's not the American dream. It's it's the it's the the Canadian dream and the Mexican dream and the Guatemalan dream and the Syrian and the Iranian dream and the Russian dream. We all have this. Mm -hmm. um, it's all of us. So that was a movie that, uh, again, was something that came at a at a sad time that wound up giving me a lot of inspiration. Mm -hmm. And is it, where can people see this if they want to check it out today? Mine, pbs.org. I think okay. it's on YouTube as well. It's all over. It's called Dream On. Mm -hmm. uh, confused with that Brian Ben Ben HBO sitcom, but uh, it's mm -hmm. out there. And so this is a good segue to politics. We got an important election. You know, I mean, Jesus, every election, everybody says it's the most important ever. This, are. this one is truly the most important ever. What's What keeps you up at night given the political landscape these days? Where do you want to begin? I mean, on what level? You know, OPEC cutting oil production is keeping me up nights right now because Saudi Arabia really wants their Donald Trump back. Mm -hmm. Just like Russia wants Donald Trump back and North Korea wants the worst people in the world really want Donald Trump back and they're going to spend money to make it happen. Uh, what keeps me up nights is... um. It's 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 the fact that gas might be six dollars a gallon next year, when Donald Trump is running for office again. That keeps me up nights. Uh, you know the the fact that we've gotten so much better as a culture in so many ways. Look at look at homophobia. Look at how far gay people have come since AIDS. How a plague led to the greatest advancement in civil rights for any oppressed minority in the history of humans in this country. Mm -hmm. uh, and yet. The, the the systems are in place are not changing. You know, economically, it's still hard for people. The middle class buying power is at its lowest point since 1968. We've just continued this process from the early 80s where the middle class is the top of the bottom. And uh, any culture that allows both billionaires and poverty at the same time is a culture that doesn't seem very serious about lasting. Mm -hmm. So you know, I, I worry. I, I don't worry about Donald Trump being elected again necessarily. Um, and I, hey, I'm a comedian, so you know I'll be okay if it's Donald Trump. Good for business, right? Donald Trump put my child through private preschool. I'll have you know. <laughs> so I, that God bless that man for all the money he brings comics. But I happen to love America more than I love making fun of Donald Trump. So I'd rather not see him in office again. Mm -hmm. um, but again, you know what I've learned about this country is for every awful thing you got, I'll show you five things that are amazing. I'm I'm not an optimist, Andy. I'm a recovering cynic. Mm -hmm. No, what keeps a, you up at night? What, what worries you? What I mean, you have a you have a great social media, and you have the most incisive takes, and and you have such compassion and guts all the time. What what keeps you up at night? Besides acid reflux, yeah. Besides that, um, Trump becoming president again. I logically can sit here and say, you know, when I ana analyze all the moving parts, it it's highly, you know, I mean, if I was a therapist, I'd say, well, Andy, there's a there's probable, and then there's possible, right? It's possible he could become president again, but when I really analyze all the moving parts, it's highly improbable, but that's conventional wisdom, and we've learned in the last eight, nine years of Donald Trump that conventional wisdom is out the window, right? Nothing that we ever thought would happen has happened. The flip side no. to that is that Democrats 
consistently win every freaking election there is. So there's that. I mean, the Democrats have won the popular vote of the American people seven of the last eight presidential elections. Right. You know, the, the, the dead slave voters who demanded an electoral college gave us Bush and Trump. But yeah, you know, I think this next election is going to be like every other election. If there's high turnout, Democrats will do well. Mm -hmm. If there's low turnout, Republicans will do well. Mm -hmm. well we had an election like this week. I mean, it, what was so fascinating to me is that Sunday it was gloom and doom. Oh, my God, this poll, this New York Times Siena College poll. Tuesday, it was a 180. Now everybody's that, Biden's huh? Biden is jumping for joy. Everybody's happy. Democrats are going to win. And it, the, the, yeah. the wind changed so quickly. What did you make of Tuesday and in particular how you think it might impact a year from now? Well, I mean, you're but you're exactly right, Andy, you know, and, and by the way, like then, of course, now we're nine days away from another government shutdown. So it's like this emotional roller coaster we're on, um, you know, people were so excited on Tuesday, then so depressed on Wednesday watching that GOP debate. Um, the poll was fascinating over the weekend because people are I mean, they're still crying David Axelrod off the ceiling. These polls were so bad. I have to point out to people these negative polls showing Joe Biden losing in swing states. Uh, these polls are of Americans who answer their landlines. Mm -hmm. They're polls of people who answer landlines, and they're polls of people who see a number they don't know on their cell phone and pick it up anyway. So just so you know, that's the cross-section. That's who's doing these polls. It's people who still have landlines and answer them, and people who pick up their cell phone when they don't know who the caller is. I don't know about you. I don't consider <laughs> that the most broad cross-section of Americans in this century. Mm -hmm. Um, and if you look deep in that poll, in all the swing states, Donald Trump's 91 indictments in four jurisdictions don't affect the voters at all. But if Donald Trump got one conviction out of all 91 charges, 6% flip over to Biden. Mm -hmm. So that means Biden wins in every one of those swing states if Trump gets one conviction. So please remember, terrified, progressive and moderate and anti-evil friends, uh, it's it's Donald Trump has seven criminal trials between now and the RNC next year, four criminal and three civil Tish James right now. Donald Trump's uh, uh, pyramid scheme trial starts in January. And then there's a second E.G. Carroll trial for sexual abuse. It's not going to be a good year for this guy. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, you're right. Then comes Election Day and we actually see what happens when the dog catches the truck for my whole life. The Republican Party used abortion as their magic Hogwarts spell. That was it. I mean, abortion is the magic word that gets followers of Jesus to vote against everything Jesus ever talked about because it's something Jesus never talked about. And they really thought this would help them forever and ever. And then they finally got it. And only now do they understand how deeply unpopular that and most of their other policies are. So young people are engaged. Republican women are not voting Republican in many cases. Um, and it's going to continue to haunt them when there's high turnout. So you see a Democratic governor getting reelected in Kentucky, which Trump won by 26 points. You see Ohio, which has gone from being a purple state to a solid red state, but they show up in massive numbers to actually put abortion rights into their state constitution and decriminalize weed. And then you see Democrats walking away with both houses in the Virginia legislature and effectively ending Glenn Youngkin's... Mm -hmm. Good bid to walk in last minute and be the surprise shiny hero of the R. I mean, I've been thinking there's going to be a contested convention next year and they'll make Glenn Youngkin the nominee and throw out Trump. And right. I, that's not going to happen now. Mm -hmm. So it just once again restores my faith in the power of democracy and that people really do care. People are going to show up. 
And people don't like having their rights taken away. And a lot of men are waking up to the fact that the women they care about and respect now have fewer rights than their mothers and grandmothers did. And that's going to drive people to the polls for a generation. And I'm actually thrilled about it. One thing about America, you know, every 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 bad thing leads to a good thing. There's no absolute valued logic. The night Trump was elected, I, I thought, oh, my God, I'm glad my parents aren't alive to see this. But when I saw Americans mobilize and resist, mm -hmm. that's we wish my parents were alive to see this. So America, Andy, is going to break your heart and then make you swoon 10 times a day. Now, I 100% I agree with you, and you're very logical and rational and practical in terms of looking at the facts on the ground in order to be able to project what might happen next November. I remain very, very positive for all the reasons you stated. I mean, even with Governor Bashir in Kentucky, he went from winning by 1% last time to 5% this time. That is huge. That's huge. Um, the debate. Uh, what, what were your big takeaways from that? Oh, wasn't it inspiring? Wasn't it great? I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah, but Vivek. Oh, I mean, if, let's all watch the debate and see who gets to be only 50 points behind the front runner who isn't here. <laughs> only one can be a distant second. Isn't it um, amazing yeah. to you that, I mean, years ago, if you said to a politician, hey, if I could tell you that your opponent is out on bail in four different jurisdictions because he's been indicted four times on 91 felony counts. What would you do with that, right? But yet you watch a debate. Nobody, not even the moderators, nobody mentions this man's criminal problems. Uh, Chris Christie did. He was Chris the only Christie, one. like, dipped his toe in the water. He's going to be busy. Yeah, he's going to be busy with trials. It was depressing. It was, you know, I mean, my, my drinking game words for the debate were uh, abortion rights, Palestinian civilians, and middle class. So I stayed completely sober because those things don't get me. I should have said woke and uh, open borders. That would have been good. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, Vivek Paswami, when God closes a Donald Trump comedy door, he opens a Vivek comedy window. This guy is like if Eddie Haskell from Leave it to Beaver was up all night doing coke with James Woods in a doorway. That's, I mean, and Ron, slaves got great training, uh, DeSantis and, uh, and Nikki Haley. I think we can all agree Nikki Haley looks amazing and brilliant when she's standing next to Vivek Ramaswamy. I'm presidential next to Vivek Ramaswamy, Andy. She literally, I mean, when, when could you imagine ever where like uh, uh, a presidential debate, one candidate would look at the other and go, you're scum. Yeah. This is the world we yeah. live in today, right? Yeah, I mean, but but in fairness, that, that dude really is. I mean, that dude <laughs> just makes me ashamed to be a petulant child of rich people who has no talent or skills whatsoever. Makes you be happy to be a bland white guy, doesn't it? Kind of. There you, there you go. Can, yeah. You can yeah. you can own that. You can be proud of it. <laughs> but, but again, this is this what we call the presidential campaign loser industrial complex, because you know half of these people are only running for higher public speaking fees and cable news deals. Right. We'll see Vip, uh, with a show on Newsmax by next year. And last question, Joe Biden. I think he's a great president, yet yeah. what's happening there? Uh, you know, I, it, it, I grew up with a lot of Joe Bidens. I grew up with, uh, I liked the anti-apartheid Joe Biden, um, didn't like the Iraq war Joe Biden. I, I liked the uh, vice president Joe Biden who came out for marriage equality before Obama, didn't like voting for the Clinton crime bill Joe Biden. I, you know, I, I like many people. Um, old Joe is my favorite of all the Joe Bidens I've ever lived with. I'm, I, I actually am surprised he wasn't my first choice or my second choice, uh, but old Joe I, I I would not have believed it if you told me 10, 15 years ago that this guy would get the lowest rate of childhood poverty in our country's history for one year, 
decriminalize weed at the federal level, fight tooth and nail to forgive student loan debt, meaning the interest. The loans are already paid off. It's just the interest that keep people hostage for years and years. The PACT Act for the vets, the CHIPS Act to bring manufacturing back to the country, the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years, and he's 80? I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. This guy is like a lesbian Scientologist. He's getting a lot <laughs> done in a day. And I, I hate the ageism. Harrison Ford's 80. Martin Scorsese's 80, Mick Jagger's 80, Carol King's 80. I'd vote for any of these. De Niro, any of these people I'd vote to be president over Donald. Keith Richards is going to be 80 in December, and I'd vote for him over Trump. And Keith Richards isn't even American, and he he might be dead, and I'd still vote for him. He doesn't have his original blood. No, no. Well, actually, my theory is when the Stones went to Switzerland to get their blood changed, all the other blood went into Keith. (laughs) I've always believed that. Um, So, uh, you know... He's done a lot, and the ageism is uh, not a problem for me because, first off, I, I, I would rather I don't I'd rather have the president who needs another nap than the president who needs another defense attorney. You or, know, like or lobotomy, I like doing, right? I like doing our presidents not thinking about his next mistress or his next job, <laughs> and whoever he runs against, he's going to be running against ninety-five-year-old Herbert Hoover economics. So ideologically, Biden's already the young guy in the race, right? Well, I agree with you, brother. Amen on Joe Biden. And uh, I really appreciate you coming in. This was great. And hope you'll come back. Anytime you'll have me, I'm really honored. I want to tell you, I, I, I've i always had such admiration for Adrienne. And your film was so moving. Mm-hmm. Um, as, a, as a neighbor in the West Village, uh, I, I just, I love your story. And I, I love uh, your story with her. And it's really, really an honor to be on your show and drag it down to, to my level. So thank you. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate the kind words, and I'd be happy to have you back anytime, especially when you compliment Most me. Of- thank you. <laughs> Take care, John. This episode of The Back Room was edited and produced by me, Andy Ostroy. It was co-edited and co-produced by Maddie Rosenberg and co-produced by Jen Hamoud. Our theme song was composed by Andrew Hollander, and our logo was designed by Cricket Langell. And special thanks to Patricia Wind, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast and also follow or subscribe. Until next time, keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards and have a great week.